Shared parenting does make it easy. I'm your host, Chris Batchelor, and this is the Parent Time Podcast. Parent Time Podcast is presented by National Parents Organization, a national nonprofit who is working hard to bring shared parenting nationwide. Welcome, everyone. My name is Chris with National Parents Organization, and today I'm here with Teresa Harlow, who is an author, a speaker, and a collaboration champion. And she's got a new book out. She's here to tell us all about the book and tell us a little bit about how she got into working with families and uh, and dealing with shared parenting. So, Teresa, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Chris. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you get involved with you know with parents and working with parents and collaboration and and all this sort of stuff? Yes. So I've been a co-parent, a divorced parent for about 21, 22 years now, and also a step-parent for the better part of the last 14 years. And as that journey would suggest, I, I've lived this. And, you know, when my then-husband at the time and I decided that divorce was the path for us, he said to me, Teresa, you know, you're going to miss half of your son's life. And, you know, while I had thought through a lot of how we would look as a divorced couple, I really hadn't thought about how the divorced family functioned and what that exactly meant. I had thought about it in more of a general sense, but not those specifics. And when he said that, I was a little bit taken aback and thought, I have to solve for the idea of losing out on half of my son's life. He was only six years old at the time, and I wasn't entertaining the idea of missing out on half of that parenting experience. So I set out to you know, solve my own problem in this regard so that he and I, my, my son's father and I, could collaborate and be in the same venues together as our son came up through sports and music and all the things that parents want to both be there for. I didn't want there to be the awkward scenarios that you hear so many parents, you know, play out where one parent can't be in the same in the room with the other parent and kids have to keep them separated. And so I didn't want to see that as our future and my son's future. And I came upon our solution, which really ironically came from my childhood, from things my mom had taught me how to interact with others and, and how to treat others. And she had told me, Teresa, you know, and everybody's heard this, right? If, if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything, right? And, and I'll be honest, my son's father and I had long before that abandoned that principle. And so I thought, okay, well, I've forgotten that one. So let's try to start there and, you know, stop throwing the verbal knives at each other. And let's see how far that takes us. But being realistic, that obviously you can't be silent the rest of your life and you do need to communicate with this person. Even if you've decided your romantic relationship is over, you still have to, you know, talk through various parenting aspects. So I went a little bit deeper with that and came upon another thing or remembered another thing that she had taught me, which was, Teresa, treat others the way you want to be treated. And I'm like, ah, well, now we're on to something because I don't know how necessarily he wants to be treated, but I certainly know the kinds of things I would want someone to say to me or not say to me. And so I thought if I can just reintroduce these types of things into my behavior, 
let's see where that takes us. And as I did that, Chris, amazingly, he began to reciprocate that behavior toward me as, as it um, regarded our parenting. So it really enabled us to be collaborative and just dismiss all of those other emotions that surrounded our previous relationship as a couple and focus more on being good parents and helping each other to really be good parents. With that, other parents said to us, boy, I wish my parents would have done that for me because it was hell on wheels for us. And, you know, I was like, well, it, it really wasn't that hard. And we would have other parents say, I, I want to be able to do this. And so, you know, I shared this message with them and, and I, I saw from all sides of this good and bad outcomes that kids were having to experience and the parents too, you know, nobody wins when someone's not getting along in a family, right? We all know that from other family conflicts we've had. And so I decided to put it down in a book. And this is actually my second book on the topic of co-parenting. In this book, I go a little bit deeper in exploring combative behaviors that, frankly, go beyond the relationships I've personally been part of to really address what do you do when you're in a conflict scenario what, or that you're, you become conflicted. And so that's the idea of why I wanted to do this. I really just wanted to save others some of that learning by maybe helping them get there more quickly by sharing my experiences and to highlight for them some of the things they may not realize are derailing them or that don't have to derail them if they're on the victim end of that. Yeah, I think a lot of parents, you know, really don't realize how enmeshed they are emotionally, you know, still with their, their ex significant other, right. And, and how much that influences their interactions with that person. And I mean, you know, cause you make a lot of memories with these people and then all of a sudden now you're kind of on different sides of the fence, but you need to work together for this, this common goal. It's really hard, right? Yeah. Well, you know, a friend of mine a long time ago said, you know, cause, and this was I think I was still with my, my son's father at the time. And he, this guy was getting divorced and I said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. He said, oh, don't be sorry. You know, we had some really good times together. I got together with her because I loved certain things about her and those things haven't changed. And so we're going to take away from that relationship, you know, and, and we're not going to destroy those photos that I'm going to carry with me that are always going to be positive things. And I thought, wow, that's a really different perspective that I hadn't considered because usually you hear the, you know, is it okay to even like an ex-spouse? I mean, you know, you're, are you yeah, violating absolutely. some kind of code? <laughs> so. Yeah. And it, I think it's great whenever, you know, that. I think it's great when, whenever people can do that, but uh, I think there's a lot of relationships, you know, like I said, they're still enmeshed emotionally and it's really hard to have a good, you know, co-parenting relationship when you're, when you're still enmeshed emotionally. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what's some examples with co-parenting and, and how you can reduce combativeness with that? Well, so remembering that it's not a competition is a, is a big one. So a lot of times parents will focus on, well, and, and, and part of it's, it comes out of a fear of maybe losing time with the child that they want to please the child. They want to be their friend. They want to make sure that they win at the parenting game and, and that they come out looking the best. And, 
so rather than focusing on it being this competition between you and another parent, think of it more as a partnership. And obviously the romantic partnership's over, but the family partnership, the parenting partnership, it, it survives that. And so it's a matter of how do you want that to look after your divorce? Do you want it to sure. look combative? Do you want to model that behavior for your child? Or do you want to put forward a, an example for them that you would want them to then later in their life emulate? So focusing on being that good parent and enabling your other partner in parenting to be the best they can be by giving them information, by giving them the time they need with the other child, by being flexible when that makes sense. And then also making sure that the two of you have laid out some specific guidelines so that when you do have conflicts, you don't have to go at it, but you can refer back to something that you've already talked through and can use as a reference to kind of reground you guys in something that's not necessarily going to turn into um, an argument, but rather, oh, let's look at what we've said about that before. So co-parenting plans are a big, big thing. So what's the most disturbing, you know, disruptive behavior that we've seen and, and what's the fix for it? Well, there's varying degrees of that. Like the most extreme example, I think anyone would probably agree, is I actually have a friend whose ex abducted the child. They went for a visitation. It was court-ordered visitations and he never came back with them. And he fled the state. And so she hired private investigators and had to, over the course of, can you imagine, like 60 days or so that she was without her child, not even knowing if he was safe. So that's extreme. It's criminal. And, you know, it, it I mean, that's probably the most difficult thing I've actually had a friend share with me that they've had to come through. The on, on a more common scale, if you will, would be the manipulative behaviors, you know, intentionally trying to make another parent look bad. And I think that's what a lot of MPO is about, is that parental alienation and how to, you know, not have that happen. So, you know, I have a real soft spot in my heart for any parent that has that happen to them. I had a very good friend who I saw the other parent really systematically trying to eject them from the life of their child. And I just don't know, Chris, what the parent thinks they're gaining out of that. Again, are you winning if that's the outcome for you? Or have you just lost maybe a, a parenting advocate, someone that could be on your team and help you get this very difficult job of parenting another human being done. Um, yeah, I think, so. I think a lot of times, you know, the parents get focused on, you know, what they're going, you know, what their post-divorce life is going to be like. And they, they kind of go to this, you know, Armageddon scenario. And so then they, they go to fight for their life, you know, and of course there's always money to fight over and, and, you know, time with the kids and who gets to make decisions. And, and the courts certainly don't make this, you know, easy because they don't start in the middle. Uh, a lot of times. And so it, it creates this combative atmosphere, but, but you're right. I don't think a lot of parents really think through, you know, what is the end state going to look like? And, oh, by the way, I have to work with this person for, you know, how many ever years until the kids turn 18, right? 
So I, I think they all, all forget about that. Yeah. And then, and then afterwards. So I think the courts really aren't, aren't helping. And, and, you know, we were at MPO, you know, we're focused on trying to change the laws so that things are more fair. And we've seen that when, you know, should parenting is introduced that people are less combative and there's less, you know, issues around the combativeness, right? So it's better for everyone, but, but certainly a lot of parents don't think about this at the beginning. They just sort of set up in war mode and, and then they go kind of scorched earth and, and don't, Right. really think about what are the consequences. Well, if you burn everything down, there's going to be nothing left to regrow, right? Yeah. And, you know, in in the defense of those that, that start down that path, it's not necessarily out of a bad intention. I mean, I think a lot of it is what they feel like is a defensive maneuver, if you will. Like, they're afraid they're going to lose their child. So they do all these things to try to build up um, their defense so that if something does get thrown at them, they've got a whole list of things they can pull out and, you know, touche. And it's like, you know, the whole time you're focused on that, what if you focused instead on making sure the other parent, you know, could could do this parenting job well? Because how difficult is it for someone to stay mad at you if you're constantly helping them? I mean, really, it starts to disarm someone. And I'm not, you know... I'm not unrealistic here. I know that some people will not respond to that, or maybe it'll take many times. You may not get a good response the first time. Maybe they may think you're up to something if you start treating them nicely all of a sudden. But if you do it over time, and remember, this is not because necessarily you're motivated to treat them nice. You're motivated by the idea of wanting them to be a good parent as much as you want you to be a good parent so that your child and all of you have the existence that you strive for and and a happy life yeah i think it's it's so important to really focus on you know what's the future state when you're going through all this because you know I, you mentioned you know alienating behaviors before and I, I certainly know there there's intentional alienation and then there's those those behaviors that parents have that are unintentionally alienating they're not even aware they're really alienating their other parent until it's pointed out and and then the parent has an option right they can either choose to change their behavior and not do that anymore which, which is the right thing to do, or they can continue to do that behavior, which is, which is damaging. So I, I think it's important too, to point out that, that there's sort of, you know, you get in this defensive mode because things in court, a lot of times will, you know, there's a lot of untruths that come out in court just to, to try and get, gain an advantage. Right. You know, and then, so people get in a combative mode, but, but then, you know, once the court stuff sort of dies down, you get into that alienating behaviors and, and there certainly are intentionals and then there's, there's certainly unintentional. So I just wanted to see what your thoughts were about that. You know, there are, and that's actually why I decided to do this second book. One of the things I think is, is true is that people we get triggered emotionally by things, right? And sometimes we say things and and we either realize or maybe don't realize that that was hurtful to the other person because in that moment, all we were thinking about was our own self-preservation. And sometimes you have to like observe as an outsider, if you will. In the case of this, you're reading my book and you see me describe a particular combative behavior. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what, I've actually done that here and there. And I didn't think of it quite like that playing, like that's how it played out and what it really caused. And maybe that's why 
you know, Joe is treating me the way he is because I've done that rather unintentionally. I mean, I'll give you a great example of unintentional conflict. So this is perfect because <clears throat> when I wrote my first book, which by the way is called Happily Divorced, I asked my ex-husband if he wanted to be part of it. I thought it would be really cool to present our story, which is what it is. It's more of our story. But that for it to not just come from my perspective, but also for him to weigh in and say, well, I see it slightly different, but in the end, yes, we both had a really good experience and here's how we came together, blah, 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 so that it would have some more, you know, credibility to the story rather than me just saying, yeah, this is, this is how it went and we were great. And so he said, sure, I'd like to be part of that. So I started writing the book and I started sending him chapters. And the idea was I'd write a chapter and he would then give his version of the same scenario. And we got to about chapter four. It was dealing with a particular topic that was kind of a trigger point for both of us. And he suddenly sent me an email and said, stop, I don't want to be any part of this. No time out. And it, it, it was really pretty conflicting for him. And he just begged me really to stop the whole process. And I said, well, I, I really think we can help people, you know, and I kept down this path and long story short, I said, okay, look, let me take a time out on it. He's, he was expressing to me that it felt like it was really imbalanced. And he said, you know, you're making me out to be the bad guy. And I frankly didn't think I had written it that way. Right. So I took a time out and then I went back and I reread my first few chapters. And meanwhile, I finished, I actually finished writing the whole book. And then I read the whole thing as if I was him. I really tried to put myself in the place of if I heard somebody say this about me, would I want someone to say that? Would I want someone to describe me in that way or characterize me as having taken that response? And it was enlightening because I was like, mm, I don't really think I would like that much. And we had come so far. I didn't want to. It would be crazy for a book that's supposed to help people to get along as a divorced uh, couple, as parents. For the book to destroy all that would be, you know, just devastating. So I was like, well, I have to fix this because that's what I do. I fix <laughs> problems in my life. And so I rewrote, I rewrote probably 70% of it. I kept the general premise and I tried very hard to not necessarily make it watered down where we didn't have any conflicts, but where I highlighted a conflict, I tried to be very honest and give both perspectives on that. So I get it done. And he was honestly not even speaking to me at this point, which was the first time frankly, in the 20 years since we had gotten divorced where that had been the case. So this was really a big deal. And I called him and I said, I've actually revised the whole book. I would like you to take another run at it and look at it. You don't have to necessarily be part of writing it, but I do need you to buy into it and for this to not destroy us because that's far more important to me than, than the book. And so he read it and he told me when I dropped it, I took over a, a printed out copy of it. And uh, 
he said, oh, I'll probably get to it like in a week or two. I've got a whole bunch going on. I'm like, okay. And I got home and he said, or I had been home for like, I don't know, maybe two hours. And he texted me. I had invited him to highlight anything that still bothered him. I said, please read this with an open mind. If there are still things that bother you, please highlight them. Let's talk about them and let's resolve them. Or I can just throw them out. Nothing is that important. So, you know, I'm home for this two hours. All of a sudden he texted me and he said, I'm about four chapters in and so far so good. Well, that's the point where it had started to trigger him before. So he got past that fourth chapter and he said nothing highlighted. So we, we ended up working through it and he didn't highlight anything. And he said it felt more balanced. It felt more fair to him. And my whole point of that is even 20 years removed from our marriage, I still felt the need to preserve that relationship with him. Because look, even when your kids are grown, you're going to have weddings, you're going to have grandkids, you're going to have family celebrations that call for the two of you to hopefully be able to be in the same room together and not make it terrible for everyone else around you and particularly your kids. So we got past this crisis in our relationship and moved forward and found a way. So. Well, that's pretty amazing. Before we were getting recording, we were talking about, you're really excited about how you had talked about a correcting course in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, what are some good tips on that? Yeah. So correcting course is interesting because people, a lot of times I think come, they look at a book titled Combative to Collaborative, the Co-Parenting Code, and they're like, well, there's no hope for my ex or we just, we can't get there. We're too high conflict. And I would say that a lot of times that may be where you feel like you are, but there's really a lot more that you can do. First, I'd say if you haven't tried to be collaborative, don't assume you can't be. But the thing that got really exciting for me as I entered into doing this third stage of the book, because the book is divided into three stages and correcting course is the, is the third stage was it was provoked by a conversation with a friend who I gave an early review of the book. And he read several chapters of it and he sent me a, an email and he said, you know, this is great. However, my ex would not read this book. I'd be the one reading it because she's combative and I'm the one that feels like I need the help. I'm the one motivated to improve. And I was like, oh man, you're right. And here I have been writing these combative things saying, this is a combative behavior. You shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this kind of uh, combative thing and really addressing it to the combative person. And I realized I needed to put a whole bunch more help in there for the person that falls victim to the combative behaviors. How can you redirect you know, hostile behavior to more effective communications, or how can you prevent triggering them if you know you're dealing with a combative person? Well, this friend had also said to me, we couldn't even get past the hurt to think of the idea of collaborating. And I said, I'm going to have to take that away. And I took it away and I thought about it and I said, I've got it. <laughs> and it felt like really an epiphany to me. 
Because I really even thought back to how my ex and I had approached this because, look, there's always hurt involved in the ending of a marriage, or at least you would think so. And um, did we apologize to each other before we could co-parent? Did we ask for forgiveness or forgive? No, we actually didn't do those things. We just redirected our attention. So. When someone says, how do you get past the hurt? I want to relieve everyone of some guilt right here and, and the big burden that you're carrying around. You don't need to. You don't need to fix that romantic relationship. It's over. So that may be a painful exercise right there to accept that and move beyond it. But I'll tell you, once you actually declare that romantic relationship in the background, something that's over and that you've already finished, then you're free to move on to what does it take to enable this other person and myself to be the best parents we can be. So that's the big epiphany is that you don't have to forgive the other person ask for forgiveness, apologize if you don't think that you owe the other person an apology and you don't need to receive an apology. Even if you think you deserve one, you still don't need to in order to be a good parent. It's just not part of that puzzle. It's a different puzzle. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, I mean, I think parents, you know, like, like we said before, the emotional aspect of, of getting divorced is so, so strong. You forget that really, you know, once you become a co-parent, you've really transitioned from, you know, having an emotional relationship that's, you know, based on romance to really a business one, right? Because, you know, at this point you're dealing with kids and money and time, and, and it's really more business focused than, than anything else. So I, I think a lot of people forget that and they you let their emotions kind of get in the way of, of actually having that business relationship. They do. And if they, if they have that problem there, and, and it's sometimes it's, it's hard for us to just look, we can't just turn off our emotions and become robots and we're not all Spock here. So I, I get that, but focus on the emotions that benefit you. For instance, you know, your kid, your, your other parent knows your kid. You know, if you see them do something really good on the sports field, the soccer field, whatever, share that with them or, or comment on it there with them at the game or laugh if you see them do something funny and, and laugh together. There are still emotions that you can enjoy together without a romantic relationship being even being part of that, just as any two people that share, you know, family members might do. Yeah, that that's excellent. What's the best piece of advice you have for divorced parents? So I'll say two things. One, if you have not considered the idea of being collaborative or being able to accomplish collaboration because you deal with a high conflict ex-spouse, don't write it off. It doesn't matter if it's been 10 or 20 years even. Uh, your circumstances for what kind of communications you have to have with that person may evolve and change over the time, but you still really benefit from being able to collaborate with them as your parenting partner. And two, remember 
if you if you don't know how to treat this other person, treat them the way you'd want to be treated because that's going to kind of be an anchor for you. You can always go back to that if you're not sure what to say to someone. Say it out loud to yourself, like offline from talking to them and, you know, did it sound good? Would I want somebody to say that to me? Or would I want someone to take that action with regard to me? And if the answer is no, then try, try recalibrating. Try revising what you're going to say. And that's not to say you don't say anything, you know, even though mom said don't say anything. If you got nothing nice to say, you need to say something that is a little nicer and find a better way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And and I'll, I'll add that something that's worked, you know, with, with people that I know and it is, you know, really ask yourself, is this necessary? You know, is it, is it necessary to have a communication about this or are you giving necessary information? You know, sometimes we want to just, you know, write three paragraphs about something when really a sentence or two will, will do. So, you know, that, that's another piece that I, I think, and I'm sure you address it in the book that, you know, sometimes less is more, but you really don't escalate things by, by adding too much information. That's, that's for sure. So does co-parenting work for everybody? What, what's your take on that? You know, unfortunately, no. I would say there are some basic things that are disqualifiers. One is, and and when I talk about these, I mean the unresolved versions of these, and I'll 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 explain what I mean by that in a second. But you know, where there's domestic abuse, violent behaviors, criminal behaviors, or some type of unresolved substance abuse. You're not going to be able to to move forward with those things still in play. But I want to be careful here because I you don't want to write somebody off forever that may be seeking to improve themselves. Even the, the most egregious behavior, someone can come to terms with that, realize what they've done, and redeem themselves. And we all deserve a second shot. When we've done the work to, you know, show remorse for our previous actions and, and repair those things and try to do better. So while those I'd say are disqualifiers, if they're in the present and, and those things are still active issues, they could be resolved, but the person has to do the work. Otherwise, it's not only going to be very difficult to collaborate, it could potentially be dangerous for those that are engaging. Yeah, and I think it's important to to really bring up here when we we talk about co-parenting, collaborating, you know, those terms sometimes bleed into the legal world and and I don't think what we're talking about here are the legal terms of joint, you know, joint custody or, you know, joint visitation, that sort of thing, but but really we're talking about how the two parents interact with each other. That's right. And you know, the term co-parenting wasn't even a term when my son's father and I divorced. Shared parenting was the only term that anyone threw at me. So, you know, it, it's kind of a nice thing that co-parenting has become a term and that people recognize it as a way to interact with one another once you're no longer a couple, a romantic couple. So kudos to all, all that have come after us to make it more mainstream, if you will to find ways forward that are more positive for the families involved. And, you know, that goes for blended families as well. 
Another term that comes up quite often is parallel parenting. And, uh, and so I think in some of those instances that you're talking about where you have somebody who maybe is a substance abuse problem or, you know, they have some, you know, issues with the law, that sort of thing. I think parallel parenting is really where it's at, but that doesn't mean you have to strictly parallel parent all the time. I think there's aspects that you can co-parent with and, and really it's just up to every situation to figure out where you co-parent with and where you have more strict boundaries. What, what's your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think parallel parenting is a good option for, like you said, those situations where there's unresolved issues that prohibit a, a, a more collaborative existence of the two parents. And it still does allow co-parenting to some degree to happen in a more protected way. But it doesn't have to be that way forever. I think of that as, as maybe a good viable interim solution to real root problem resolution. But hopefully the parents that are finding it easier to do the parallel parenting are also simultaneously working on the issues that prevent them from doing more of a collaborative style of parenting together so that they can eventually get there. Yeah, I think it's really important to point out that, you know, kids will go through stages, the needs of the family will change. You know, when I say family, I mean, both families will change as the kids age. And, and you know, certainly the things that they need when they're four, five, six years old are going to be different from when they're teenagers, right? So it's important that you sort of evaluate this stuff, you know, fairly often. I, I mean, I would say, you know, once a year, once every couple of years, you know, what what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, not only as the kids age, but also as your circumstances at, in your home life change. Like if you start introducing new partners, new adults into the kid's life, if you get remarried, if, you, if they have children, if something happens to cause an illness or a disability in someone in the family, whether it's the parent or the child, those circumstances all impact the co-parenting plan, the parenting plan that you've uh, established and now you need to to revise and do what's best so that's where that idea of being flexible is really important because a lot of people again will get caught up in this nope nope that's what we agreed to that's how it's got to be i mean even financial scenarios if someone says yes i'm going to pay for college but then when college comes up Suddenly it was the pandemic. They lost their job. They didn't have any income. And you do maybe, maybe your kid, your circumstance was different. Does it really make sense? You know, and, and, you know, and I know that it sounds like, wow, you're really generous, Teresa, but I'm just all about what is sensible in the moment and circumstances do change and you can always establish some other addendum to a previous agreement that handles the current scenario. Maybe it's kind of a, a loan scenario or some other agreement to handle even that type of situation. But when you, when you hold on to something that no longer makes sense, it, it, just, it, it just creates unnecessary conflict that could otherwise be resolved. Yeah, it's so important to recognize, you know, what creates that conflict because it could be emotional, it could be situational, it could be a lot of different things. And really just slowing down and, and sort of observing the situation and asking yourself, you know, where's this conflict coming from? I think can be really helpful to help people realize, oh, well, 
Yeah, I can see how that would cause this other person to get mad and be combative, right? So yeah, certainly evaluating things is, I think, really helpful for parents. Yeah. And, and I was just going to add that I think a lot of times people make assumptions of somebody's motives, right? You think someone took a certain route, exhibited a certain behavior because of something, but unless you ask them, you don't really know. So a lot of times if, if say your child's other parent does something that irks you, rather than sit there and ruminate on it and make all kinds of assumptions as to what they were trying to accomplish, ask them, what were you trying to do there? Did you realize that, you know, or, you know, get, help me understand what made you go that route with how you spoke to me or the action you took or whatever. And, you know, seek to understand because you may discover that it was incidental. It had nothing to do with you. There's other, some kind of other circumstance going on that they're dealing with that's causing them to maybe be late every time they have to drop a child off to you or not have any clothes available or whatever the the situation is that's bothering you. Yeah, I think a lot of times, at least what I've seen in, in practice is, you know, unless they're really going out of their way to, to, to you know, be alienating or, or something like that, usually it's not personal, you know, it's it's really incidental. And I think a lot of people will personalize these things just because they are so you know, still emotionally connected, uh, to their partner. Yeah. And not everything's about us, right? It's, it's like exactly. everything I do isn't, you know, to directed to you. <laughs> so getting back to the book, you know, besides divorced parents, who the book combative to collaborative, who's the book for besides uh, divorcing parents? So really, Chris, anybody that deals with families in distress, if you're a divorce attorney or family lawyer, a mediate, if you work with families through family therapy, if you're a family therapist in particular or a family psychologist, this book could be a good resource for your clients and you can read it for yourself and maybe even get some ideas of from a layperson's perspective, which is me. You know, something you may not think about from a from a professional um, sense. And, you know, it just could be another um, tool in the in the toolbox that co-parents can go to. Besides them, even if you're whether you're contemplating or recently divorced, you know, even if you haven't gotten to that point yet, this book could actually reveal to you all the things you're going to have to deal with, which may cause you to, you know, take a deep breath and go, maybe I need to slow down. Have I tried everything? Do I really want to go down this path? Or can I try to apply these ideas before the divorce actually happens or we separate? Because I, I kind of wish that, you know, I maybe could have discovered these ways of interacting with my son's father before, because it wasn't the easiest choice to be separated parents. So anybody that has a, a high or not high conflict, but any level of conflicting relationship in their life, you know, we all have somebody, whether it's a, a family member or even a coworker, you know, even if you have and this may sound far-fetched, but seriously, if you're calling customer service or if you're calling tech support. The central message of this book, which I kind of drive home consistently throughout it, 
is that golden rule, treating others the way you want to be treated. So if you if you were to read the book and really see how I bring you back to that point over and over again, it can help you in all your relationships. Well, I want to take a look uh, at your webpage now. You've got a webpage here for your book. And, uh, well, it's actually for you, and then you've got your book on it. So I'm going to show that now. And, uh, boy, the book has gotten some really outstanding accolades here from from some folks in the industry. Jack Canfield, who's the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, has reviewed it. He said this book is a true breakthrough for co-parents struggling to positively interact. And then Gary Chapman, who has famously authored The Five Love Languages, said couples who have experienced the trauma of divorce and are trying to co-parent their children in the best possible way will find this book extremely helpful so yeah you can go on the website here to to buy the book and find out some more information about it so besides your webpage, which is uh, teresaharlow.com and we'll have links to that in the uh, in the show notes here where else can people find you and interact with you yeah so going to my website i have a blog there which i frequently uh, write articles and share them i'm also available on all the social media and i uh, be happy to interact with you there. I'd love to have you check out the stuff that I post and maybe weigh in on it. Tell me what you think. And I even answer occasional questions that people pose. So I'm, I'm here to help. And that's what it's all about, making us all better parents. Well, that's fantastic. And we certainly look forward to the new stuff that you're going to be putting out, which I'm sure we'll, we'll see another book from you here at some point. And, and you're also on uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So if you're on any of those channels, make sure you go to Teresa's website. It's TeresaHarlow.com. You can get the links to all of those uh, social media accounts there. And certainly uh, thank you for coming on today. And we really appreciate you sharing your book with us and, and your experience with co-parenting. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate NPO having me. Now that was recorded on video. So if you want to go ahead and watch the video, you can find the link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. And if you have any questions, you can contact National Parents Organization at sharedparenting.org. Don't forget to like National Parents Organization on social media. Just go ahead and do a Facebook search for National Parents Organization and smash the like button. You're also going to find several Facebook pages for different state chapters, so go ahead and like those pages as well. And don't forget, you can also follow National Parents Organization on Twitter or LinkedIn, the links to those social media sites are on the sharedparenting.org website. If you're passionate about shared parenting, the best thing you can do is get involved. And the best way to do that is by contacting your state chapter. If you head over to the sharedparenting.org website, you can find the links to your state chapter and then contact them directly to take action and volunteer. We could also use your help with donations. National Parents Organization is a nationally recognized nonprofit registered in Massachusetts. To donate, visit sharedparenting.org and click the Take Action and then Donate. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Tell us what you think on social media or by going to the sharedparenting.org website and sending us a message. Fill out that contact form and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear about what you think about the show or what you want to hear on the show, that sorts of thing. So go ahead and, and send us a message. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Chris Batchelor. Thanks for listening, and together we can help bring shared parenting nationwide. 